GOP's first 2024 presidential debate united by a tough-on-China agenda. How would the eight candidates tackle Washington's engagement with Beijing? Protests erupt in northern China, with angered citizens demanding compensation after flooding wrought havoc on the area. They say officials released flood water without notice and caused even more damage. America's largest professional networking platform infiltrated by Chinese spies. Western intelligence agencies say agents for Beijing used LinkedIn to uncover UK state secrets. In China, dumping $10 billion into global infrastructure as experts warn about the ambitions behind the development fund. Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Before we dive into today's news, make sure to use the link below to subscribe to our newsletter. Each week, we round up the highlights and controversies happening around China and the world and share an exclusive behind-the-scenes snapshot with our readers. Keep an eye out. The newsletter will land in your inbox Friday morning. Republican candidates going toe-to-toe -to -toe in the first GOP debate last night. The eight candidates vowing to be tough on China, mentioning topics from fentanyl to energy and Ukraine. When it came to foreign policy issues, there were some disagreements. Political newcomer Vivek Ramaswamy saying the Russia-China alliance is the single greatest threat we face, but taking most of the heat from colleagues. Here's what presidential candidate Nikki Haley said from last night's debate on Fox News. So the reality make America is, less safe. You have no foreign me, policy experience, and it shows. And you know what? Now is not the time for on-the-job training. We don't need to bring in a rookie. We don't need to bring in people without experience. Former Vice President Mike Pence referred to China only once, calling for greater U.S. support for Ukraine to deter Beijing's potential aggression towards Taiwan. North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum was the only candidate to reference China in his closing remarks, saying, quote, the way we win the Cold War with China is by growing our economy and through innovation. While absent from the debate, former President Trump still dominated, doing his own separate interview with former Fox News host Tucker Carlson. Trump did not hold back when it came to China issues, calling President Biden compromised, going as far as to call Biden a, quote, Manchurian candidate, pointing to his family business dealings with China. That's in light of the recent IRS whistleblower, Gary Shapley, who says Hunter Biden threatened a Chinese businessman that he would use his father's position to ensure, quote, promises and assurances were kept. As for how to deal with China, Trump recently proposed new tariffs on all foreign imports. The White House responding, saying such a ban would hurt America's working families, damage the economy and fuel inflation. Trump has also called for the U.S. to end permanent normal trade relations with China. And he's not alone. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley echoed those calls. The world's largest professional networking platform has become a handy tool for a Chinese spy. Western security agencies say he used LinkedIn to get a hold of thousands of British officials and lured them into handing over state secrets. The spy's main alias is Robin Zhang. This is according to an investigation by British news outlet The Times. Who's on Zhang's target list? Security officials, civil servants and academics. In short, those with access to classified information or commercially sensitive technology. 
How does the alleged scheme work? Zhang first reaches out to targets by posing as a recruiter on LinkedIn. He then asks them to write reports within their areas of expertise. After that, Zhang asks targets for secret information to prove their credibility. Once that goes through, he invites them on trips to China, often to give speeches or for other business opportunities. After the targets arrive, he uses dinners or deals to encourage them to hand over sensitive information. If those soft tactics don't work, he may try to blackmail targets. The UK says it's on high alert about China's interest in the country. A report from the UK Parliament's intelligence watchdog said the country is of significant interest to China because of the UK's close relations with the US. It sits just below China's top priority targets. China is in the red zone. That's the message from the commander of the U.S. Southern Command. The comment last Friday drew attention to China's Belt and Road Initiative and how infrastructure projects under it could quickly switch gears to serve military purposes. Southcom General Laura Richardson called up Beijing's construction projects in South and Central America as examples, saying, quote, they are on the 20-yard line to our homeland, adding they're on the first or second island chain to our homeland. China's controversial Belt and Road Initiative offers loans to smaller, less developed nations used for building seaports and other critical projects. Often dubbed as China's debt trap diplomacy, Western nations accuse the Belt and Road of saddling recipients with mountains of debt. Later, when they become unable to repay China, Beijing takes control of the infrastructure in exchange and inches closer to Washington's doorstep. But there's more, with Richardson and other officials warning that China could use the Belt and Road to set up future military bases in the Western Hemisphere though it doesn't have any yet. China's embassy in Washington has brushed up those concerns as lies and slander. Richardson highlighted Chinese-controlled deep-water seaports in Panama and Chile, plus 5G telecom gear in South and Central America, saying the U.S. is getting outcompeted by the Chinese right now, and that Washington must be able to offer alternatives to China for Latin America. Angry flood victims protesting in front of a state council building in northern China. They took to the streets over disaster compensation money, which many say is severely lacking. Let's take a closer look at what's happening. This is the scene in northern China, outside the state council building of Bajou City. Thousands of protesters gathered outside, voicing upset with the way local authorities addressed the area's recent flood. The majority took issue with the damage compensation provided, which totaled around 137 U.S. dollars. One report suggested that the figure would cover just 1% of their losses. The protest started out nonviolent, but public anger rose, with some protesters smashing the building's glass walls. Inside, a banner hanging in the lobby read, Serve the People. Similar unrest has popped up across the country with some incidents ending with aggressive police tactics against demonstrators, including the use of pepper spray. Flood survivors are facing food shortages and urgent financial challenges following the flood disaster. Facing a major debt crisis at home, China is dumping billions of dollars abroad. But what's motivating the investment? 
On Thursday, the Chinese regime leader Xi Jinping pledged to launch a special fund to bolster the global development. China's financial institutions will soon launch a special fund of 10 billion. Xi announced the plan on the final day of the BRICS summit in South Africa. The group is made up of Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa. The news comes as China is facing some of the worst economic hardship since the Communist Party took power in 1949. So the huge funding promise is raising eyebrows. China's main plan is to invite African countries to join a special project, China's Belt and Road Initiative, which sets its sights on the continent years ago. But the project faces major criticism from the West. China economic analyst Antonio Graceffo warns of another aspect, buying votes. These countries that are heavily in debt to China will also vote with China in the UN. Those concerns come as the BRICS organization announces plans to expand, adding six new members to its ranks. China's property woes now spreading to trophy office buildings. In the nation's financial hub, Shanghai, about 19 percent of the most exclusive office space is empty. A British real estate firm reports that more tenants in Shanghai's office buildings are now terminating leases than signing them for the first time since 2015. Office vacancies are also rising in China's other top-tier cities, including Beijing, Guangzhou and Shenzhen. In Beijing, office vacancy rates there have hit a 13-year high, with rental prices for office buildings dropping about 20 percent, their lowest since 2012. In a January video shared online, a second-hand office supplies dealer said his stock was piling up. Beijing's full of bankrupt firms. I've got heaps of office supplies to handle, thousands of sets at once. This building is a total ghost town. A Beijing resident told Hong Kong Economic Times that in 2020, office buildings in Beijing stayed lit until 9 p.m., but now large lit spaces are rare. An industry veteran told NTD that this year's office rental market looks grim, describing just two or three groups of customers per month, with almost all deals now being inked at reduced prices. Now we zoom in on the Korean Peninsula. On Thursday, alarms blared in Japan as North Korea launched a new rocket. But it ended in Pyongyang's second failure to put a spy satellite in space. That's just days after the U.S., South Korea and Japan agreed to better tackle North Korea's missile threat. Beijing criticized that agreement, saying it would increase the risk of confrontation. Here's more. Thursday was the North's second failure in three months. However, the North's space agency vowed on Thursday to try to launch the satellite again in October. The nuclear-armed country wants to place what would be its first military intelligence satellite into orbit, saying it eventually plans for a fleet of satellites to monitor moves by U.S. and South Korean troops. Thursday's failure comes less than a week after U.S. President Joe Biden met the leaders of South Korea and Japan at Camp David, the presidential retreat where they agreed to look into conducting joint military exercises to tackle challenges that include North Korea's nuclear and missile threats. And on Monday, the U.S. and South Korea kicked off a 10-day joint military drill known as Uchi Freedom Shield, which the North called a rehearsal for nuclear war. South Korea's Foreign Minister Park Jin and his U.S. and Japan counterparts on Thursday strongly condemned North Korea's rocket launch, which they said was a ballistic missile designed as a space rocket. 
The South's foreign ministry said that the ministers agreed during a phone call to consider unilateral sanctions in response to Thursday's launch. Another big story to look out for, 81 bills across 33 American states, all introduced this year to restrict Chinese purchases of land near U.S. military bases. Stay tuned for more coming up tomorrow on China in Focus. But coming up today, a deconstruction of the first GOP debate. Eight Republican candidates eager to prove they are not soft on China. How would they handle Washington's engagement with Beijing if elected? We sat down with Gregory Copley, president of the International Strategic Studies Association, for details. More on that after the break, here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. An increasingly hawkish stance setting the tone for Washington's China policy, highlighted by the first 2024 GOP debate on Wednesday. All eight candidates invoked China in a wide range of contexts. What does that mean for relations between Washington and Beijing? We speak to Gregory Copley, president of the International Strategic Studies Association, for more. Gregory Copley, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Wonderful to be back with you. The first Republican debate for the 2024 presidential election just concluded. In your mind, who was the strongest when it came to foreign policy, especially towards China? Well, unquestionably, the strongest two candidates were Vivek Ramaswamy and California Governor DeSantis. They both had a clear prioritization of the PRC as being the major threat to the global economy and to global security. And they put that well ahead of the Russia-Ukraine dispute. Uh, in fact, the other candidates all bought off, if you like, on uh, President Biden's insistence that the Russia-Ukraine dispute take priority in global strategic uh, concerns. And Gregory, it seems when it comes to Ramaswamy, he mentioned that the Russia-China alliance is the greatest threat to the U.S. And former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley shot back saying he has no foreign policy record. What do you make of that attack? <laughs> well, uh, I, I would have to say that uh, former Governor Haley also has really no foreign policy credentials. A, a, a short stint at the United Nations doesn't give her credentials. She, in fact, is exceptionally naive on strategic issues and on international issues, uh, frighteningly naive, in, in fact, as is, for that matter, uh, former Vice President Pence. Uh, in, in essence, there's no question that Vivek Ramaswamy has a much better grasp of the global strategic balance than most of the other candidates, perhaps ex excluding uh, the Governor DeSantis and, and perhaps Senator Scott. Uh, they all are pretty good. But Governor DeSantis and Vivek Ramaswamy have a worldview which is not governed by the Washington insider set, which is extremely important. And speaking of former Vice President Mike Pence, he mentioned China once, and that was in reference to Ukraine, saying the U.S. has to help Ukraine so as to deter a potential aggression towards Taiwan from Beijing. What's your take on that one statement from him? Well, I think it was superficial at best. The reality is that uh, the PRC is studying the Russia-Ukraine conflict 
to, to see if there are lessons which can be learned in a possible confrontation with Taiwan and confrontation, for that matter, with the world community, because how the world uh, has been galvanized to respond to the Russia-Ukraine dispute uh, by, the, by Washington uh, will determine to a degree how they respond to a potential Beijing attack on Taiwan. Not necessarily, but probably uh, that's the case. And it seems lately China has been dominating headlines a lot, but it was less so last night in the debate. As you mentioned, Ukraine took more airtime. Why do you think that is? Well, because it's a Washington agenda. Uh, the uh, Biden administration has successfully followed in the heels uh, of the Clinton and uh, Obama administrations in uh, upgrading, if you like, the potential threat to the world community or to the West from Russia and the potential importance of Ukraine to NATO. This is a fictitious and old-fashioned concept, and in fact, they've created this conflict. And in fact, it's the Clinton, Obama and Biden administrations which have driven the, uh, the Russians into the arms of the People's Republic of China. We have to bear in mind that these are not natural allies. Russia and China have been at each other's throats for hundreds of years. Uh, and that included the, the period of, of joint communist government, Sino-Soviet, uh, the Sino-Soviet pact was in fact very much fraught with internal disputes. And uh, it was important in 1972 for Nixon to go to Beijing to break Beijing away from Moscow at that particular time. Now, because of what the Biden administration has succeeded in doing, at some stage in the next decade, if the world is fortunate enough, uh, the West will have to work to pry uh, Moscow and Beijing apart again, because together they are dangerous to the Western world, and we've forced them together. And it seems, well, President Trump or former President Trump was not at the debate. He was still dominating headlines. He did his own interview with Tucker Carlson and he went after President Biden quite a lot. He talked about him being a quote Manchurian candidate. That's in regards to the Biden family's business ties with China. How serious of an allegation is that or is that just bluster? It's more than bluster. Uh, it's been carefully uh, stated because, let's face it, the Biden camp, as well as the Hillary Clinton camp, camp accused uh, then-candidate Donald Trump of being a Russian agent and being influenced and controlled by Moscow, which was a ludicrous statement. It's not a ludicrous statement to make allegations of links between the Communist Party of China and the Biden White House. Those financial links have already been disclosed. They are coming out more and more. Uh, so uh, the claim of, of the Biden White House being a Manchurian candidate's residence is um, interesting and it's carefully done. I, I think if Trump were to go further with it, he would risk losing credibility. But the facts are emerging more and more, which make claims of Biden being influenced by Beijing and by other foreign governments, uh, much more credible than the Clinton-Biden comments about Trump being influenced by Moscow. It does seem in terms of Trump's claim, one of the most outspoken ones was found to himself have been tied to Russia. But following this debate, where do you see U.S.-China engagement going from here? Well, the Biden administration, uh, for its own reasons, is attempting to pour oil on troubled waters. It's trying to calm down the 
the problems between Beijing and Washington. Uh, unfortunately, uh, that can't be achieved very readily simply because of the collapse of the economy on mainland China. Uh, production has come to a halt. Imports are declining dramatically. You look at the impact on the earnings of the world's biggest uh, resource company, BHP, for example, uh, its profits plummeted, I think, by three, uh, three quarters over the last year, simply because of the decline in demand from China. So the PRC economy is collapsing regardless of what Washington does. So uh, the question is, what is Washington gaining by kowtowing to Beijing at this particular time? And what would it take to change that? Certainly, things could be done to uh, limit the extent of the damage. Uh, part of that would be in getting the legislation and taxation laws uh, in the United States, in the various states, not just federally, uh, to the point where uh, agricultural production and the transportation of agricultural goods uh, is more greatly facilitated, uh, that uh, bureaucracy is reduced in the United States as well as taxation so that you can get uh, trucks and trains on the move again and get investment to become an attractive proposition, not just for the big ticket items like uh, computer microchips, but also for everyday items. Gregory Copley, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocusntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching. See you tomorrow.